Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami. This morning I was reflecting on the um, quality of Samagi or, or harmony, concord in the Sangha. And this is a uh, very uh, crucial quality and uh, also brought to mind the one of the incidents from the, the lifetime of the Buddha which uh, illustrates both the qualities of, of discord and argument and the, the quality of, of concord as a contrast. Uh, this was at a time when the, the Buddha had been living uh, in the um, Gosita Rama, Gosita's <coughs> monastery in uh, Kosambi. And an argument had grown up uh, with, amongst the, uh, the monks living at the Gosita Rama. That one, uh, one monk who was an expert in giving Dhamma talks um, had, uh, say, made a. Um, Broken one of the the minor rules in terms of looking after the uh, the bathrooms, and uh, one of the other monks who was a uh, expert on the vineyard rules then brought this uh, this infraction this uh, this transgression to his attention and said, "Oh, you, know, you shouldn't have uh, have, uh, have, done, have done that. You should have looked after the uh, the bathroom in a in a different way. You didn't do that right." And the, the monk who was the expert in Dhamma teaching said, oh, well, sorry about that, thank you for pointing that out to me. Um, and, uh, but uh, I didn't realize that was a, was a, a rule. Um, and then the other monk said, oh, well, if you, if you didn't realize it was, a, it was a, um, an infraction or if you did it out of a lack of mindfulness, then it's not really a, a transgression, it's not really breaking the rule. And so the monk who was the, and that's a rough, rough version of the story. Yeah. So the monk who was the expert in discourses thought no more about it. And said, okay, well, I'll, remem- I'll remember that for the future. And um, the uh, th- <coughs> and thought no more about it. And the, the monk who was the expert in the discipline then went away to his students uh, and said, huh, that monk who's supposed to be an expert in Dhamma teachings, he doesn't even know what the rules are. He doesn't know what's an offense and what's not offense. Yeah, he's an idiot. Yeah, uh, he's, a, he's broken a rule and he didn't even, didn't even realize it. So then those students of the Vinaya master then chatting uh, as happens, probably in the common room or down at the, uh, the robe-dying shed with the, uh, the monks who were the students of the, the Dhamma teacher said, ha, huh, your, your, your Ajahn is supposed to be a, an expert in Dhamma. He hasn't got a clue what the rules are and what the rules aren't. He's a, he's a fool. Uh, 
and um, yeah, he's he's broken this this rule. And he doesn't even uh, doesn't even uh, um, recognize that uh, that's what he's done. And so then they report that back to their teacher, to their acharya, and he says, "Ah, well, one moment the the vinaya expert says I haven't broken a rule, and next and next thing you know, he says I have broken a rule. He's a liar." <laughs> and so then um, the uh, the two factions started to argue with each other, you know, and taking sides and clinging to their vin- uh, opinions and points of view. And saying, yeah, your teacher's an idiot. Your teacher's a liar. Your teacher's an idiot. Your teacher's a liar. And and then, once the fight had started, then what happened was that each group got more and more deeply attached to their views, and uh, and more and more aggressive and um, defensive of their own opinions uh, and attacking the opinions and views of the other. And so there was a. Uh, a conflict, a, a division grew up within the, the monastery. So the Buddha was living at this monastery at the time, and so he was uh, aware of this argument growing up, and he uh, did his best to try and get the two different sides to to listen to each other and to um, to find a way of re-establishing concord. And he would go to one side and say, you know, harmony in the Sangha is extremely important. It's, a, you know, this is a minor rule that's being discussed. You shouldn't sacrifice the harmony of the Sangha just over a small matter like this. You should uh, be uh, more um, aware that that's the priority and uh, <clears throat> so that you should, say, uh, not uh, criticize or blame, uh, attack the uh, yeah, another uh, another monk in this way. And the other group, he said, well, even if you think you haven't caused an offense, then it's, uh, even if you're sure you're in yourself that you haven't broken any rule, uh, just for the sake of harmony, it can be a useful thing to say, okay, well, I didn't think I was breaking a rule, but uh, for the sake of harmony, I'll acknowledge that, yes, uh, you know, yes, I did, and so then we can settle our differences in this way. So to cut a long story short, the... Uh, they wouldn't listen to the Buddha, and they carried on with their argument. And uh, over and over again, the Buddha went back to each side, first to the, the students of the Vinaya Master, and then the students of the Dhamma Master, and each one wouldn't listen to him and got more and more uh, stuck in their views and opinions, attached to their, their views and opinions. And uh, <clears throat> eventually, one of the, the the junior monks said to the Buddha, well, you know, please... Venerable Sir, don't worry yourself about this. Yeah, this is our argument. You know, please just, you know, take yourself away and um, have a enjoy a peaceful abiding, and you know, we, we'll, we'll settle this ourselves. And so, basically, saying, you know, get lost, old man. You know, we'll, we'll sort this out. You know, don't don't bother us. We've got an important argument going on, and uh, you know, don't don't interfere, and just go, go and uh, uh, see. Uh, may you enjoy a peaceful abiding. <laughs> Just buzz off and leave us alone. So the Buddha uh, was uh, um, uh, surprised that uh, his own students, his own disciples, could be so extraordinarily stupid, thick, thick-headed, and obstinate. And so after this had all gone and gone uh, around. Uh, 
and he tried to correct them several times over. You know, after the third time, he he realized these monks are completely incorrigible. They are they they are completely dense. They they're not open to any kind of correction. They won't even listen to me as their teacher, even if they they proclaim that they have respect for me as a fully enlightened Buddha. They and I'm living in the monastery with them. They, they they're not listening to me. They're not seeking uh, harmony in their their community. That they're more attached to their own views than they are uh, seeing the, the value of concord in the sangha. So, seeing there was nothing he could do, they wouldn't listen to him without uh, informing the sangha, without taking an attendant, without telling anybody. He packed up his robes and his bowl and walked out, left them to it, and they went off by himself. And um, he went uh, away from that place, from Kosambi, from the Gosita Rama, and went to go and live on a solitary retreat in the forest of Parileya. And uh, there, he uh, on his uh, on his arrival, he went uh, to to visit this this forest of, the, of Parileya, and uh, there was three monks living there on retreat. And this was uh, Venerable Anuruddha, uh, Venerable Kimbila, and uh, Venerable Bagu, I think, were their names. And uh, so, when he arrived at the forest, uh, at this this uh, park. Um, the uh, the forest warden uh, came up to him and said, "Oh, sorry, sir. You know, venerable sir, you you can't come in here. There are three monks who are who are living here, and they're very keen on meditation, and and they don't want to be disturbed. They're very serious about their spiritual life. So, you know, please please don't interrupt them. Please don't disturb them." Uh, well, uh, Anuruddha picked this up and quickly came along and said, "No, no, no! Don't 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 send him away. This is our teacher. This is the blessed one. This is our master." He's not interrupting us. He's he's our our revered um, teacher. So they welcomed the the Buddha in and uh, gave him a place to sit and uh, and to sit down, a seat to to sit on. And they um, they washed his feet and offered him uh, water and uh, they um, took his bowl and looked looked after his things. And the Buddha saw that they were uh, and there was a very different atmosphere there in this little forest of Parileya, and that uh, the um, quality was one of great, uh, great peacefulness, harmony, and, and ease between the, the three monks who were living there. And it was a big contrast to the the bickering bhikkhus of of Kosambi, and so being very struck by that this quality of concord that he. He uh, he saw that he asked them. So, uh, <coughs> how are you living? Uh, how is it for you here? Do you do you, uh, do you dwell harmoniously? And they said, yes, indeed, we we do live in harmony with each other. And he said, well, how do you do that? And they said, well, uh, we um, uh, we take it in turns to set up things uh, for our. Uh, uh, our daily activities, so uh, arranging our little uh, little hall, the sala, for the for our meal together. One one person does it each day and sets the place up, put it, putting out the water jugs and the, setting up the seats for the for the meal time. Um, we take it in turns to clear up afterwards. We all uh, say engage in these activities silently together with, for our daily meal, and uh, if. 
um, if we need to, to say, fill up water jars or carry uh, water around the monastery, then we do that together. We, we uh, lift the heavy jars um, by, by sharing the load with each other and we don't even bother to talk at those times. If we, if we need to work together, we don't engage in idle chit-chat, but we will just work silently together, carrying out the various duties to look after our little, uh, our little community. Uh, and then once every five days, we'll gather together and we'll uh, discuss Dhamma and we'll sit up the whole night uh, uh, reflecting on Dhamma and discussing it together. And uh, you know, this is how we, we, uh, uh, we live together harmoniously. And, uh, and the essence of this is that uh, we are always considering, you know, why, should I, uh, why should I not set aside what I am interested to do what I desire to do and instead uh, make the effort to follow what the others desire to do why should I not put that aside my own wishes my own desires my own preferences in order to uh, in order to serve in order to say act in accordance with what the others wish to do or what is going to be beneficial for the whole group and this is how we live together as friendly and undisputing as milk with water looking upon each other with kindly eyes. This is a very beautiful expression, just like when you pour uh, water into milk, the, the, they, um, they mix perfectly, the, 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 um, they don't separate out like oil and water, the, uh, the, they blend together easily and perfectly. So uh, this is the model for, for Sangha life, just like uh, Water and milk joining together, mixing together without any kind of division, without any kind of difficulty. So too, uh, uh, a sangha is a group of human beings of all kinds of characters, different genders, different ages, different backgrounds, different personal histories, that we, uh, we can dwell together, mixing together just like milk and water. And as he uses in this, this beautiful expression of uh, looking upon each other with kindly eyes. So this is a, a, the, the model, this is the, the ideal, uh, and, uh, and it's one that's quoted quite often. But it's a beautiful and a helpful model to, to bring to mind. And uh, it's such a contrast also to the, the arguing, contending, and... and uh, bickering monks of, of Kosambi where rather than looking upon each other with kindly eyes they as the Buddha said they uh, attacked each other with verbal daggers you know, you know throwing you know, verbal knives attacking each other with with uh, sharp pointed knives of of speech and clinging to their opinions and say creating a quality of alienation division judgment you know, you're like this and you're wrong and i'm right you shouldn't think that way you should think this way uh, creating conflict contention division through attachment to opinions attachment to your own uh, personal concerns your own personal positions so this is one of those the stories uh, from the lifetime of the buddha that creates a very um uh, uh, say distinct and, and clear picture for us to to use, and I feel this is very uh, very helpful principle to to uh, say take in to take to heart and to consider because uh, this is a this is a very harmonious community, and I feel very impressed and, and honoured to live in this uh, amongst this fine to be a part of this fine group of people.
But uh, uh, there are, are times when every single one of us, I'm sure, is, has that feeling of, well, what about me? Or how can, how can he do that? Or what, what on earth is she thinking? How, can she, how could she say that? Or why does he do it that way? And uh, we judge each other. We, we, com- we complain about each other. We, we criticize. And uh, the mind moves towards that, I'm right, I'm right you're wrong uh, mentality. So that simple phrase of um, uh, that the, the Buddha uh, receives from the description of Venerable Anuruddha, where Anuruddha says, um, "Why should I not put aside what I am, what, what I wish to do, in order to to do what the others wish to do?" Uh, that just in that in itself, that's a, a very helpful and marvelous way to to say work with our own uh, self-centered. Uh, habits of mind, the, the the kind of deeply rooted conditioning of self-concern. You know, what about me? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. If you want my opinion, yeah, I think that. And uh, to be able to listen to those voices in, in that arise in our minds, those judgments, of what we think, what I think is right, what I think is good, and and if I'm sort of criticizing or putting others down or or judging others to to consider well why shouldn't I put it even if even if I'm sure I'm right <laughs> why shouldn't I put aside what uh, what I'm what I wish to do or what I think is right in order to uh, consider and to respect to to make space for what others uh, see as right or good or to to respect and to consider other people's perspectives because just because I think it just because I think something why, why on earth should that mean that that is an absolute truth or something that is the only, the only valid perspective, the only sort of um, uh, real or proper way of looking at things. It, that very attitude helps us to see that our own opinions, our own views, our own perspectives, it's just one way of looking at things. Like I'm sitting up here on the Dhamma seat, I'm... I'm looking out at all of you. You're uh, either sitting with your eyes closed, or you're looking in this direction. Yeah, and the the, you know, the the nuns over on this side, they're they're looking uh, towards the uh, towards the south, and then the the um, the monks who are sitting in front of me, they're looking towards the, the west. We're all looking in different directions. We all perceive a different temple. We are seeing different things. We we so both from our, our physical sight and also from our, our mental sight, our, our, our internal um, point of view, we see a different world. We see things from different perspectives, from a different angle. So that uh, <clears throat> it's just like if I hold my hand up like this, I say, uh, which direction is my finger pointing? Is it pointing to the left or to the right? From where I'm sitting, my finger is pointing to the left. From where you're sitting, it's pointing to the right, you know, wherever you are in the temple. So is it pointing to the left or is it pointing to the right? <laughs> Both are true. It just depends on where you're sitting and, and where you're looking at things from. So the mind that says, you know, well, it can't be both pointing to the left and pointing to the right. You know, I, I can see it. It's right in front of me. It's pointing to the left. So I'm right. <laughs> and if you say something different, then you're wrong. It's as... It's, uh, 
uh, it can be as foolish and stupid uh, as, as that, just because we're not considering where other people are seeing things from. What is their what is their point of view? What is their their perspective? So this this quality of being able to respect the the disposition, the the, the interests, the the. the the variety of characters that others have. This is a, a, uh, uh, in a, in a way, the the root of samagi, of concord, of how we we live harmoniously with each other. It's not just a matter of following the same routine or wearing the same clothing, having the same haircut, uh, living in the same physical place. Uh, it, that that's not what really causes uh, concord. Those are all upaya or skillful means that help to support a quality of unity but the the real unity of the heart is this quality of uh, accommodating uh, and respecting the, uh, the the needs the perspective the perspectives the the attitudes uh, the the characters uh, of others and to uh, to consider how could i possibly be more important than you how, how could my perspective be more more real or valid than yours? How could that be? What makes just because a thought goes through my mind, what makes that true, and what goes through your mind not not quite as true or or, or wrong? How could that be? That very uh, say spaciousness, openness of attitude towards our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own point of view, then enables us to uh, to live in concord to to live in a respectful and uh, harmonious way with others so in, in this uh, what what this depends upon is being able to uh, attend to our own patterns of thinking it's because we uh, we don't see that it's an opinion that uh, that we or it's a thought in our mind, but we assume it's a, a an absolute truth. That's where we get lost. That's where we get, we get stuck. So, in order to establish this this basis of concord, we have to learn to listen to our thoughts and to learn how to develop that kind of perspective upon them. That uh, I remember very clearly. Uh, Early on, when I, when I first arrived in the monastery, and I, I couldn't understand why the monks and novices kept talking about views and opinions. Or they'd say, you make some statement, and they say, well, that's just views and opinions, or that's just your opinion. I'd say, it's not an opinion, it's the truth. They say, well, it's your opinion that it's the truth. <laughs> I say, no, you're just uh, you're being stupid. No, it's, what I'm saying is true, I'm right. When we don't see that our opinion is an opinion and we take it to be absolutely true, then there's there's no possibility of us really finding any genuine concord, any genuine uh, attunement to others. It's only when we're able to recognise, well, this is uh, this is an opinion, this is a this is a thought, this is an attitude. That's all. It's like any other sankara, any other conditioned formation in nature. It arises, it passes away. It's not self. It, it, it can only be uh, 
it can only be incomplete and, and imperfect. Uh, it can only be an approximation to the truth. It can't be an absolute truth in and of itself. Uh, when we are able to see that, uh, we're able to then, uh, say, establish the, uh, the, the possibility of, of concord. So learning to let go of our, our thoughts, our opinions, to see that these are, are just uh, habitual judgments, they're just uh, ideas in our mind, that they can't, they can't possibly be absolutely true. Our words, our thoughts, our concepts, they can only be half-truths. They can only be, uh, say, an approximation, or what I like to call a, a convenient fiction. They're, they're a, a story, an image, they're a picture that can help point towards the reality, but they, they can't contain and encompass the, the, uh, the reality itself. Just as the Buddha said, these are conceivings, they are manyati, they are the conceptions of the mind. And as he said, all conceivings, conceptions of the mind, manyati, he said, conceiving is a is a tumor. It's a cancerous tumor. It's like an infection. It's a a burden. It's something that's alien, foreign, stressful, dukkha. Yeah. So you're if you're asking a concept or a word to encompass the absolute truth, you're asking too much. Yeah. It's like trying to drink tea out of a drawing of a teacup. You know, there aren't enough dimensions to a thought. You need to have a three dimensional cup or a a three-dimensional glass to, to drink the water out of it, a drawing, a picture of a glass, it hasn't got enough dimensions. Yeah. So a thought, an idea, a word, does not have enough dimensions to, uh, to fully accommodate or represent the truth of things. One very helpful teaching that the Buddha gave uh, describing his own practice before his enlightenment was talking about this the, the other day with a, a group of the, the Sangha here, is a, uh, it's a, a, a simple practice that he describes in one of the suttas in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length discourses. It's called the two kind, this discourse is called the two kinds of thinking, sutta number 19. The two kinds of thinking. And it, the Buddha's describing how he uh, worked with his his own thoughts during the time before his enlightenment. And he said, you know, when I was an unenlightened bodhisattva, then I, I decided to divide my thoughts into two categories. You know, watching the mind. So, so on the one side, there were thoughts that were related uh, to sense desire, thoughts that were related to, um, <coughs> to ill will towards negativity and thoughts related to, to cruelty uh, that were, he said, I put those on one side to see these as as akusala or unwholesome. And on the other side, he, he said, I put thoughts that were related to renunciation, thoughts that were related to loving kindness, to, to non-ill will, to metta, and to um, uh, thoughts related to karuna, to compassion, to freedom from cruelty. So that uh, as he watched his mind in the process of meditation, they simply labeled the, and divided the, the, the thoughts into those two categories. Okay, these are the unwholesome. So as the mind moved towards sense desire, towards sexual fantasy, or 
towards you know, restlessness or desire for for uh, some kind of pleasant sound or taste or smell or touch, then okay, that's that's in the sense desire category, or moving towards uh, aversion, you know, ill will, negativity towards say painful feeling in his body or towards other people or towards something around him. And similarly with cruelty, you know, lack of compassion, Ill, you know, that kind of unkindness, he uh, simply saw those, or oh, these are unwholesome, these are unskillful, so paying close attention to that, being cautious and, and careful, um, then uh, was attentive not to, not to follow those, not to, not to dwell upon those. And then the, the thoughts that were related to to kindness, the thoughts related to renunciation, letting go of sense, desire, thoughts that were relate were related to compassion. Then he uh, say nurtured those or, or sus- uh, made the effort to sustain those and keep those uh, alive to give them more strength and more uh, say, uh, more support. And then he gives this uh, very, uh, very beautiful comparison. He said, when, when the mind was moving towards the negative and creating sense desire or ill will and so forth, he said it's rather like if the mind is moving a lot in that direction, then he said it's rather like if you're, if you're taking care of, a, of a, a, a herd of cows during the, the rainy season, there's lots of lush grass around and the crops are all growing you have to watch really really carefully because the the cows the water, the water buffalo are going to try and get into the rice and start eating all the rice plants and uh, destroying the crops and so you have to be extremely attentive and, and as soon as you see the the cows straying into the crops you have to you tap them on the on the, the the neck or the rump and to get them to move away from the crops so they don't uh, destroy the the seedlings and the the uh, and the uh, the other plants that'll get the get you punished and uh, and will make you lose control of the cows. So if the mind is moving, on the other hand, if it's more inclined towards the the wholesome, um, towards renunciation, towards loving kindness, towards compassion, it says then you don't have to be so sort of hyper vigilant because. Uh, what it's what the mind is generating are, are wholesome qualities. So he said it's rather like in the hot season, and there's there uh, there's not much. You know, the, the, the crops have been taken in. The the, uh, the the ground is a bit drier, and the the, the cows are less um, likely to to sort of cause any damage. So you can sit under a tree in the shade, and it don't have to be so uh, hyper-cautious about what the cows are doing, you can just sort of let them wander around because they can't cause any harm. They're not going to damage any crops. They can kind of stroll where they like and, and graze off the, the verges and, and find what uh, spare grass they can because they, they, they're not going to harm any of the, uh, of the crops and cause themselves or cause you any trouble. So this is, uh, the Buddha was, was uh, brilliant at creating these um, little similes, these images for us to, to remem- remember things by. So if the, the mind is inclined towards the unwholesome, then we need to sort of crank up the uh, alertness factor and be s- extremely vigilant and attentive to, to not letting it say, go down that track or not to, to be feeding the, those thoughts and impulses. But if the mind is... is um, creating uh, or inclining towards the wholesome, the noble, the, the, 
the kusala, the skillful, then uh, you don't have to be quite so uh, uh, so sort of uh, say anxious or so uh, hyper alert, or, or you can just you know, let the mind kind of happily you know, head in that direction, and uh, uh, you don't have to be worrying or, or, or attentive or alert to to um to stopping it or, or, or making it uh, change its direction. He also in that same sutta he makes a, a very simple comment that uh, whatever the mind frequently whatever the mind dwells upon, then that's the direction that it will tend to go. Yeah. Um so if you frequently dwell and and, and ponder upon sense desire or if you dwell upon complaining or you dwell upon fear and worry, if that's what you're, uh, you put your attention onto, then that's the, the direction that the mind is going to habitually go in. You know, like if you, if you uh, do walking meditation on a particular track, that's where you, 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 you wear the path in the grass where you keep walking. That, that's where the, the path gets marked, is where your feet are treading. Um, that's a, you create a, a rut, you create a, a habitual direction. And so this is a, a very simple statement, and in a way it's, it's pretty obvious. It, you don't have to be a, um, a rocket scientist, as they say, to, to, to work that out or to, to see how that might be the case. But it's also an extremely important principle. So when uh, we, we say recognize that, Okay, if my my mind is inclined towards sense desire, there's already a rut, uh, the down which it goes. So I I, I will habitually see um, the the sense world in that way. If you're attracted, if you have a lot of sexual desire, then when you you walk into a room full of people, then your your attention will immediately go to the ones that are desirable, and or you'll be sort of judging people in terms of of their appearance or their attractiveness. If you're a food uh, fanatic, then you'll you'll ignore what the people's bodies are like, but you'll immediately start looking at what's on the plates and the dishes, and <laughs> so eyeing up what's uh, what's available on the food front and and uh, what uh, is interesting or attractive there. Um, if your mind is is uh, inclined towards negativity and criticism, then you walk into a room full of people, and you'll your mind will immediately look for things to complain about see finding finding fault or seeing things that are, are wrong with somebody that they're, they're you know this person's you know, socks are falling down or that person is um they uh, they got really stupid kind of glasses that they're wearing or, or they they uh, they've got the <coughs> they're sort of sitting in the wrong place they uh, shouldn't be doing this or you don't like the way that they are uh, are doing that So in this respect, it's important to to uh, get to know the, the ruts that are there in our minds. Does the mind move towards fear and worry? You know, again, if someone's, if your if your mind is prone towards, inclined towards fear and worry, then you walk into a room full of people. You immediately look for things that are threatening. You know, that person's sort of judging you, or or they they are um, <coughs> they are. Uh, Perceived as being aggressive towards you, or that you know there's a, a danger of of this um, this problem, or, or that that issue coming along and, and being stressful or painful, uh, it's going to attack you or oppress you 
in some way. So it's important for us to get to know our own character, to see, to learn to watch those patterns of thought. So what are the habitual ruts that the, the mind moves down? Do, does it go towards sense desire, attractive objects or attractive people? Does it go towards status, being impressed by people who are have got lots of titles or degrees or does it look down upon people who are from you know, a, a poor background or an uneducated background do you, do you uh, <clears throat> have a lot of sexual desire judging people by their physical appearance whether they're attractive or unattractive uh, is it is it uh, food that uh, stirs your mind is it uh, attachment to asceticism you know you see somebody with a a nice you know, a brand new set of robes, and you find yourself sneering. Ugh, disgusting. He's got brand new silk robes again. Ugh. Yeah. The kind of um, ascetic, a sort of an asceticism snobbery. <laughs> that the, I've got far more patches than he has. <laughs> yeah. So. Get to know that. Get to see the, the tracks that the mind moves down. Get to know what those are and to see that just because the mind has a habit of going down that rut, we don't have to stay in that rut. We can create a different direction. And that's the essence of this practice that the Buddha is describing, is of get to know the patterns of your thinking. Is be, uh, to, to see what are the, 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 uh, the frequent directions of your thoughts worrying about uh, a particular issue or being obsessed, you know, being um, infatuated with another person or, or irritated with another person, that you, are, you find yourself uh, taken up with, for always criticizing what, what that person said or did and how everything seems to be, to be related to how awful this person is or how wonderful that person is. To see that, to notice that, and to uh, and then to to div- use the same method that the Buddha uh, applied. Okay, now is this a thought connected with sense desire? Is it a thought connected with ill will? Is it a thought connected with cruelty? If it is, then um, pay close attention. Don't give it any strength. Uh, don't give it any extra life. You know, let go of it. Uh, don't feed it. Don't. Don't give it validity. Just recognize this is an unskillful thought. Let go. If it's a thought that's connected with wholesomeness, with with uh, with contentment, with simplicity, with renunciation, it's connected with loving kindness, with compassion. Then feed it, sustain it, and bring it to life. Uh, and in this respect, it's, uh, I feel it's very important. There's not that many suttas where the Buddha talks about his practice before his enlightenment uh, but this is one of them and talking about his meditation training and when you apply this even though it's a very simple practice it has a, a very direct and powerful effect upon upon the mind and you see it's he is absolutely uh, correct that if you keep paying attention or keep seeing things in a certain way you feed that you empower that you you make it real by your attention if you stop paying attention to it, you stop following that impulse, if you, uh, if you uh, work against that, then, lo and behold, 
what was compelling or, or what was say, irritating to you a, a year ago if you if you uh, pursue this kind of practice you develop this then something that was continually annoying or irritating or thought I can't stand you know, can't stand it when people do this or if uh, um, that uh, that person is uh, is so uh, so wrong and so bad because of this this and this if you see that that direction you learn to recognize it work against it then uh, uh, within a, a few uh, a few months or a year or two then it's it's radically changed the things that that were so compelling like attractive or frightening or irritating they cease to have that power over the mind that and it's quite marvelous wonderful to see how oh look at that that was so that uh, person was so fascinating i was so obsessed and and infatuated with that person and now he or she is just oh, it's just another person in, in the group just another person who shows up from time to time look at that it was so fascinating and compelling and now it was ordinary that what was what was happening there was just the mind was creating that fascination or something that was frightening and and uh, terrifying something that we couldn't bear or wanted to run away from all the time we learned to realize oh look <laughs> i was so frightened of this why was i so frightened why was I so worried? It's it's nothing at all. It's not a big issue. Huh, look at that. Something that's that's irritating, annoying. It's, it loses its power to to irritate, to to aggravate or annoy. And then we can see that for ourselves. It's not just hearing my words or seeing it in the in the sutta teachings or some other uh Say uh, some other source, but we see that for ourselves. We see, look at that, that which was so compelling, so fascinating. What happened? It was all coming from me. It wasn't that that was beautiful or that was ugly. That was that was frightening. The fear was here. <laughs> the excitement was here. The aversion was here. The ugliness was here. It was what my mind gave to it. The more we can see that, then the more we break the spell of the sense world, that we are able to not be caught by that illusion. We, when we, the more that we're able to see that, the, the more that when that same kind of reaction happens, where it's not this person that's annoying, but it's that one. <laughs> oh, it's the same old story. It's just the mind creating negativity, or the mind creating fascination, or the mind creating fear. It's just that. It's that same chemistry happening again and we're much less able to be fooled by by it we're not able to be taken in we we see it we see the the trick the illusion for what it is so the more that we we develop the mind we we learn to recognize those patterns of thinking when and we we are then more and more able not to believe our views and opinions and to to buy into them the more we're able to cultivate those wholesome states of mind, those wholesome qualities. And so this is, in a way, helping us to, to understand, you know, this is, this is why we uh, say consciously let go of the unwholesome and consciously develop the wholesome. It's because when the mind uh, dwells upon the unwholesome, it follows thoughts of sense desire, of ill will, of, uh, of, uh, of fear, and 
and uh, uh, cruelty and so on, then it's always the mind is always in conflict with the world. I'm always in a state of of bondage and conflict with the world, just like the monks in Kosambi, that they're they are always fighting with each other, in conflict with each other, because of believing their opinions, believing their thoughts and attitudes, and taking their their own perspectives to be absolutely true and real. Uh, uh, the other the, the other camp, if you like, uh, the the little group in the forest of Parileya, that uh, because of their readiness to, to set aside their own p- uh, preferences and, and uh, their own desires and to, uh, say, harmonize with others, then there was this uh, very you know, peaceful and, um, say, supportive, benevolent uh, environment. Now, the one of the the teachings that uh, that Lumpur Cha would often give, he would talk about the same importance of cultivating the the wholesome, letting go of the unwholesome. Uh, but also, he would stress, you know, say everyone understands about good and bad or good and evil, but that which is beyond you know, good and bad, then people don't know about. They they don't understand that. They they don't know what you're talking about. You know, people know we should. Cultivate the, the cultivate the good. We should uh, say dispel or or let go of the the, the bad, but uh, that which is beyond good and bad, uh, they they we don't understand or we, we don't see. It's something that's mysterious to people. But essentially, the the Buddha's teaching is not just about accum- developing the good, but it's also about going beyond and good and evil, going beyond good and bad. And that uh, when we talk in these terms about uh, cultivating the wholesome and letting go of the unwholesome, it's important to recognize the, 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 uh, the greater context or the bigger picture that uh, that, that is, uh, say, contained within. Because in essence, good, good is not, that which is kusala or wholesome is not good in and of itself, but goodness is, is good, <laughs> Insofar as it helps to for the mind to be clear and to be peaceful, badness is not intrinsically or absolutely bad. It's just the unwholesome creates more confusion, more agitation, and more conflict within ourselves. So that the the, the Buddha's encouragement to to cultivate the the wholesome, to to uh, say develop the meritorious, the punya, uh, the this is not just, uh, um, say, attaching to those particular kinds of, of conditions. It's not just uh, uh, praising those particular conditions or saying that we should accumulate that kind of um, quality. But the the reason why goodness is good, or we call it good, is because it creates the conditions where the mind can awaken to the the fundamental reality of things so that you know the, <coughs> the we can think of of uh, good and bad just like the say if you not to uh, i mean it's, it's, you could use different images but you could say if like good is like the smooth uh, a smooth and calm sea and the the unwholesome or the bad is like a wild and turbulent stormy sea that can cause shipwrecks and such like 
but uh, say that which is beyond good and bad is that is that recognizing well both calm seas and both a calm sea and a turbulent uh, agitated sea yeah, they're they're both made out of the fabric of the sea they're they're all sea <laughs> so that uh, in a uh, maybe that's not a perfect uh, metaphor or simile but uh, it it works for us to to, to in, a, in a way to recognize that when we talk about dhamma you know, dhamma isn't just a you know, a good thing in a universe of other good things it's in a way dhamma is beyond good and bad it's like the the very fabric of of all things and so that we are cultivating the good not to just say hang on to that or identify with that and uh, say cling to attach to goodness because attaching to goodness clinging to goodness identifying with goodness is still attachment it's still a uh, a bondage it's still a, a limitation there's still a sense of self being created around that but uh, as uh, as i was just saying that goodness is beneficial goodness is uh, central to our practice because it creates the conditions where the fundamental reality of things can be uh, can be awakened to so just as like using the that that analogy of the sea if the if if you're being thrown around in a storm and your boat's being tossed this way and that you know you, you can't really uh, reflect upon things very very uh, uh, very directly very actively because you're trying to save your life you're worried about you know, being thrown uh, thrown overboard and, and uh, there's agitation and danger if the sea is calm and things are quiet and, and still then you can reflect, oh, what's this thing that we're floating on? What's this, what's this reality that we are a part of? What, what is this whole uh, ocean that is the, uh, say, the, the foundation of all things? You have the space, the uh, environment, the opportunity uh, to, to, to reflect. So similarly, when we create wholesomeness in our life, when we cultivate the good, when we let go of the fetters of self-view and attachment, to conventions, then we're able to to uh, uh, have enough peace, enough clarity, enough calmness to be able to consider. Well, this is just a set of conventions. This is just a set of forms. These are other sort of patterns of nature that arise and pass away. So that they are. And goodness is just another sankara. It's just another formation. But it it's, it creates the environment whereby the nature of all formations, the nature of all conventions can be, can be seen, can be penetrated, can be understood. So that uh, in a way, uh, the kusala, the wholesome, uh, or punya, merit, the blessings, that they are the basis, they, they, they form the environment wherein the realization of dhamma can be effected. When there is akusala, when the heart is filled with greed, hatred, and delusion, there's uh, there's the uh, the causes for conflict and agitation are being created. So, uh, just like being tossed around on a wild sea, you, know, you 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 can't really focus. You can't you can't see things clearly. You're in a, a state of of agitation and 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 fear, and um, things are wild and unsteady. So it's not possible to to uh, see clearly or to understand to say to have the space and the say the capacity to 
to to look and to see clearly. You're being thrown around by your your passions, your fears, your aversions, your your desires. Oh, it's also when we talk about um, so what's beyond good and bad, and the the phrase that uh, Lumpur Cha used on one occasion. Actually, the the title of the Thai version of the book "Taste of Freedom" is "Nok Hate Nirporn," which means outside of cause and above effect. when we, we use this kind of language, Beyond Good and Evil, uh, which I think was a title of one of Nietzsche's books, then the thinking mind can grasp that. We can sort of uh, attach to the idea of, oh, well, I'm really into that which is beyond good and evil. You know, I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> uh, I'm not concerned with goodness and badness. I'm, uh, you know, I, I really, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only interested in ultimate truth, ultimate perspective on things. And so we can take that idea of that which is beyond good and bad and we can say grasp that idea and use that to justify our own laziness, our own preferences, our own uh, opinions, and our own you know, desires and aversions. That uh, uh, we use it as a kind of pass key or a a um, uh, a, a, a kind of um, <coughs> a credit card to sort of pay our way <laughs> through. Uh, through anything, we kind of use it to sort of to bypass the conventions of society, or we we use it as an excuse. Um, the idea of not being attached to good and bad is a sort of uh, a kind of transcendent uh, pass key that lets us sort of not have to bother with <laughs> dealing with difficult situations where we chase after what we like. We get we run away from what we dislike, and attached to loves and hates and and fears and desires, and in a way fool ourselves. Well, I'm beyond that. I'm not. I'm not interested in good and bad. I'm be. <laughs> I'm not attached to those mere conventional designations of good and bad, right and wrong. I'm. I'm far beyond that. Uh, I'm not interested in those sort of worldly concerns. So there can be a lot of foolishness that that is employed in in that area. So if we talk in these ways about being beyond good and bad, it's um, it's important that uh, that's not just an idea or used as a sort of pass key or as a kind of like a, a the joker in the pack of cards that outplays every other card. But the, that there is a genuine attunement to, to dhamma. There is a, a genuine uh, freedom from self-view, a freedom from attachment to conventions, a genuine freedom from from doubt, from doubt about what is the path and what is not the path, because we can end up creating a lot of trouble and confusion, misery for ourselves and others if we we hang on to that idea, sort of clinging to our idea about ultimate reality and being beyond good and bad, and. Uh, there's quite a few spiritual teachers out there in the field who, <laughs> who have been doing this for years, or decades and decades, of uh, speaking in terms of ultimate truths and and realization of ult- the unconditioned and uh, and such like. Sort of, 
speaking in terms of these ultimate qualities, but their lives are actually uh, guided along the lines of chasing after what they like, <laughs> getting a, escaping from what they, they dislike, and uh, causing all kinds of confusion and, and pain in the people around them, particularly the, the students who had a lot of uh, confidence and faith in them. So when we talk in these terms, it's both extremely important to not attach to good and bad and to realize that which is beyond good and bad, but it's, it's almost more important not to be fooling ourselves or, say, taking those kind of uh, principles of transcendence or principles of, of that which is beyond um, the conditioned realm and uh, attaching that and using that as an excuse to, uh, to just sort of justify our, our, our kilesas, our bad habits and, and uh, attachments. So there's a great deal of, of honesty and sincerity that is required, and that, that's a very demanding, difficult quality to, to establish and to have within ourselves. But I feel that within this tradition, the, the, the practice established by Lumpur Cha, Lumpur Sumedho that we, that we follow here, the, these uh, are extraordinarily clear and helpful guidelines that our teachers have uh, passed on to us, whereby we can... Uh, Say, <clears throat> find that that uh, uh, say that genuine quality of of realization, where the heart truly awakens to its own nature, awakens to Dhamma, and then that uh, attunement to the, the the nature of our own heart becomes the source of our, our actions, the source of our speech, and so that we're not coming from a, a kind of a, a false idea about. Uh, about ultimate truth and uh, realization of Dhamma, but it's from the actuality, the actual attunement to Dhamma that is the guiding spirit, the guiding force of, of our lives, of our actions and our, our way of being in the world. So I offer these thoughts for consideration this evening. <clears throat>